You are listening to a message from Southwood Presbyterian Church in Huntsville, Alabama. Our passion is to experience and express grace. Join us. If you'll open your Bibles again to Luke. We are in Luke 23. This morning we are looking at, again, the trial of God, round two. I'm going to be reading Luke 23, verses 1, all the way down through verse 25, so you can follow with me as I read. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this day they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod. For he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man. And release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted 
He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Let's pray that God would send his spirit to give us understanding of this portion of his word. Father, we pray that you would speak to us. We need your spirit to speak. It's not just in our minds that we need understanding. We need hearts that are receptive to what you would speak to us. So would you pour out your spirit, soften our hearts, that we might have a clearer understanding of Jesus and all that he is. So come, teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, this is the second trial that Jesus undergoes. The Jewish leaders that we saw last week have already found him guilty. But... They're under Roman rule. And being under Roman rule, one of the privileges Rome has kept for themselves is the power of execution of criminals. So the Jews can pronounce him guilty, but that's as far as they can go. So they have to. If they're going to get him put to death, they've got to have Rome do it. So now they come to Pilate. And the question before this court is the same as the last court. It's not about things that Jesus has done, but it's about who he is. Who does Jesus claim to be? Is Jesus the king of the Jews? That is the question that Luke highlights for us here, and it's the question that Pilate, and really everybody involved, has to deal with. And so what we're going to do this morning is look all through this. The way that Luke writes is that he's really good at highlighting characters in his story and holding them up sometimes in contrast and comparison to each other. But here... In this story, he kind of shines the light on about six different people and groups and how they respond to this question. But first, let's take a brief look at just exactly what's going on in this trial. Pilate, we were introduced to him back in Luke 3. Pilate is introduced as Luke begins to set the stage at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He gives us a date, basically. When Tiberius was emperor, Pilate is governor. Herod, we're going to see in just a minute. Um, So we're given this time of, you know, beginning of Jesus' ministry. But Pilate, his tenure in Jerusalem was brutal, and the Jews hated him. Well, he didn't like the Jews either. Because we see back in Luke 13, as we've already seen, we hear that 
there were a group of Galileans that were slain by Pilate, and then their blood he mixed into the blood of the sacrifice in the temple, totally defiling the worship in the temple. That's what he thought of the Jews, which led to what the Jews thought of Pilate. But now the Jews have to come to Pilate with this issue. So they come, and notice how they frame their charges. It's a different issue than what they dealt with before because they know that just dealing with these religious controversies is not going to prick Pilate's interest. And so they frame it in such a way that he will see Jesus as not just a threat to the Jews, but actually a threat to Roman rule itself. Just see what he said? He said he's an insurrectionist, basically. He's forbidding us to pay tribute to Caesar, which he never did. But they're building this case so that if Pilate sees that Jesus is a big enough threat, then he'll deal with him. When Pilate hears that he is a king, he kind of takes him off to the side. We see in some of the other accounts, if you pull all four of the gospel accounts together, that this is a longer conversation than what Luke has here. Luke only is focused on one question. Is Jesus king of the Jews? And so Pilate, that's the only thing he was interested in. Jesus doesn't answer any of the accusations of the Jews. He just stands there or kneels down. You know, he's been beaten to within a hair of his life. I'm sure he looked very impressive before Pilate. But this is the only question. So when Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? He answers using the same phrasing that he did with the Jewish leaders. Basically saying, yes, I am. In John, we see, he he expands that a little bit, but it says it's not a political kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And so hearing that, Pilate sees no threat to Rome. And so he attempts to dismiss him. But then he hears that Herod is in town, or he hears that Jesus is a Galilean, and Herod oversees Galilee, so he sends him to Herod to let him question him, and maybe we'll make further progress here. Well, Herod doesn't find out anything, so he sends him back. The amazing thing in this story here is three times Pilate attempts, maybe not with all the gusto he should have, but he attempts to release Jesus. He sees there's no guilt here. And so he's trying to release him. 
He just wants this problem to go away. But the Jews will have nothing of that. They want Jesus dead, period. Nothing short of that is acceptable. And so they put pressure on Pilate. They get the crowds involved. And with that, threatening a riot, Pilate's had enough. He said, okay, have it your way. And he relents and turns Jesus over for execution. Now, as we look at this scene, again, there are six characters here or groups that Luke mentions. And we're going to go through and look at them because it's interesting how each of them responds to this king. And as we look at them, I think it could be insightful for us as we consider how we should respond to this king. And whether you're a believer and, or whether you are here just examining or curious about Jesus, about Christianity, here's the question for all of us. What are you going to do with Jesus? So again, there are six here. Don't worry. Even though there's six, I'll get you to work on time tomorrow. First, let's look at the Jews. And we'll look at them briefly because we saw them last week. The Jews uh, note here, one of the things that Luke brings out when he talks about the Jews is that they're not only angry, they're passionately angry. They are, in a sense, in a froth over wanting Jesus to be put to death. And I've said, you know, this is kind of a clue for us, and I've said probably many times, if you want to know where your particular idolatries are, There's a trail you can follow. First, look at the anger. And that anger is probably going to lead you to something you fear. And that fear is going to tell you what it is that is threatening you, but where your idols probably can be found. So what did the Jews fear? They feared exposure. They feared exposure. If they were to respond properly to Jesus, what should they do? They needed to get naked. Now, I had a lady, sweet little lady named Louise, in my very first church that told me You can never use the word naked from the pulpit. You can do it in the the fellowship hall, but not in the pulpit, which is why I stood over here. (laughs) They had to get naked. You know, there's a story in 2 Kings 5 
And it's a story of a Syrian general named Naaman. Naaman was the big dog in Syria, only second to the, to the king himself. But Naaman had a problem. He had leprosy. And Naaman heard in Israel that there was a guy that could cure him. His name was Elijah. And so he went to be cured. And Elijah wouldn't even come out and recognize him. He just said, he, Naaman, I thought, was hoping for some, him to come out and wave his hand over the spot or do something magical. But all he said was, go wash in the Jordan River seven times. And you know what that meant for Naaman? For him to wash in that river, he had to strip down. All that he wore that designated him as special, as someone high above everyone else, had to come off. And a naked general looks just like a naked private, except maybe a little older. But something else, that leprosy was going to be exposed. And that leprosy was going to cause him to be alienated, isolated, rejected, and so forth. But he did... And he was cured. The Jews had a leprosy that they could not cure. But it wasn't a skin disease. It was a heart disease. The only cure was for them to take off all that they used to make them look righteous, to make them look special. All of their good works they need to despair of. All of their rituals that they thought made them good, they needed to despair of. And come to Jesus owning their sickness so that the Savior could cure it completely. And this might be some of us. Some of us, it might be time for us to strip down and then come clean. That was the Jews. Then there's Pilate. Pilate, Pilate was in a place he didn't want to be. He was in Canaan, in Jerusalem, in a city that was notorious for insurrections, for rebellions, and so forth. And he didn't like it. The Jews were extremely hard to govern. So he just tries to dismiss this whole thing. But he can't. You know, maybe what he fears here, that the Jews are just going to, again, here comes another riot, here another resurrection. But Pilate seems like he just wishes things would be normal. Quiet. Let's just get along. 
I know we don't like each other, but we can just get along. It's kind of like families at special dinners where the matriarch of the family typically, all she wants is everybody just to be happy together and have a good time. Never mind about Uncle Ed's addictions. Never mind about the daughter who's covered with ink and wishes she wasn't there. Never mind about all the relational tension that underlies here. All this matriarch wants is said, look, let's just sit down to the table, let's smile, eat dinner, and be happy. That's kind of the way I picture Pilate here in this situation. All he wants is normalcy and peace. You know, just after I came to Christ, I remember sitting on the front porch of this big resort where I'd used to work in Virginia with a friend that was instrumental in leading me to Christ, but we were sitting there together with my brother. And we were talking about Jesus. And my brother, as we talked about Jesus and his need for Jesus, my brother understood something very clearly. And and his response to us was, but if I come to Jesus then I'm going to basically have to give up all my friends. My life is going to totally change. He said, I don't know if I want that or not. My brother understood. Jesus demands that we turn from all that's normal to something of much, much greater value. Because, see, in our normalcy, our pursuit of normal, we're looking for security. We're looking for predictability. We're looking to appease our fears. And what Jesus tells you is that normal will not work. The only thing that can bring real peace or shalom is Jesus. Because Jesus does not just keep the lid on the pressure cooker. He makes all things new. And this is what he comes to do. Your normal is a facade. Jesus is everything real. So Jesus comes to make everything right. But before that, the normal has to go. What about Herod, our next character here? Herod, Herod was ruthless. This is not the Herod that we saw 
at the birth of Jesus who murdered all those children. This is another Herod, but this Herod was not much better. Herod was the one that had John the Baptist arrested and eventually beheaded simply to please this tantalizing young woman. But while he, before that time, after he'd been arrested, while he kept John in prison, Herod used to sneak down to the prison and listen to John. Now, he hated what John had told him because John said, your current marriage is unlawful. But still, Herod liked to listen to John. You know, something about his preaching was tugging at him. But we know, of course, that was very shallow because John ultimately lost his head. But now Jesus is around. Herod thinks maybe this is John raised from the dead. He doesn't know, but he's heard a lot. And so he wants to see Jesus. Maybe Jesus will do a trick for him. I don't know. Herod seems to be dabbling, kind of skirting around the edges of the kingdom, has a little bit of interest, but that's about as far as it goes. Because see, Herod really was all about himself, and dabbling in the kingdom would never penetrate that self. A lot of folks dabble in religion. We joke about creasters. You'll see a lot of them in a few weeks. Creasters are those who show up on Christmas and Easter. Creaster. Sometimes we show up every now and then, but church, religion seems to be something that we tack on to life, maybe given legitimacy to life. There's a curiosity we have about it, but yet it's, it never gets down to the core. We cannot come to Jesus by way of dabbling. When we come to Jesus, It's all or nothing. It's like an engagement. When I got engaged to Gail, it was 37 years ago at St. Patrick's Day. I was so glad I did that on a holiday that I could remember. When I asked her, and she said, yes, we committed ourselves to each other, that meant if I had any, all the pictures of the other girlfriends and so forth would have to go. No more dating around, no more play in the field. I was hers and hers alone. And that's kind of a scary thing because you know, you do, you shut off everybody else But what I found was such a treasure. 
This is what we're called to. It's all or nothing. But what you find in Jesus, what we find in everything else is just a fake plastic pearl. But in Jesus, we get the pearl of great price. And there will be no regretting coming to Jesus. What about the soldiers? Well, we're not told a lot about these guys. They're just, in a sense, kind of mentioned here. But it's Luke draws our attention to particularly what they do. We do know that Roman soldiers were, these were men. These were big, strong, probably not real pretty. You wouldn't want to meet one of these guys alone. They were strong and brutal. And obviously from what they're doing here to Jesus, weakness was despised. So now before them, this so-called king who presented this image that was just pitiful. He's bleeding, he's been beaten, he's, God, you're nothing. And so they begin heaping abuse on this pathetic example of a king. And I imagine when Jesus was silent, that just inflamed them even more. Being strong, for a lot of us, is a very desirable place to be. It's also a very insecure place to be. I think this is really at the root of a lot of what we would call, you know, Spousal abuse, physical abuse, even sexual abuse, where the strong preys upon those who are weak because somehow their sense of manhood or being strong is threatened and they need to prove themselves that they are somebody. I think this is also why many of us do not come to Jesus. And maybe this is more applicable to men, though I don't think it's exclusive. We are taught to be strong. We are taught to be capable. We are taught to be sufficient. We are taught to be able to control and manage everything. Weakness is not acceptable. It's not desirable. It should be avoided at all cost. You know, I've known men who will not come to Christ because their idea of Christianity is that it's just a religion for weak old women. Strong men don't need a crutch. 
Coming to Jesus is not for the strong. And that's true. Coming to Jesus is for the weak. And for us to come to Jesus, we need to come and embrace our weakness. Jesus is for the weak unless we are willing to bow before the all-powerful, all-sufficient King. We cannot come because Jesus, the King, wants to be the benefactor. He wants to be the source of all that we need, all that we would ever desire. He wants to be the good giver of all things. And for us to receive, we can't have clenched, strong fists. They need to be open. We need to be asking. This is how we come to Jesus, where we despair of our ability and we turn to him for everything. That's the soldiers. So the road to Jesus, the road to glory begins at the bottom, not the top. All right, let's look at the crowds. In verse 13, we finally see that it's not just the Jewish leaders. In verse 13, we see now that the Jewish leaders have gotten everybody involved. And the crowds are now working with them and how quickly they have turned. Because just a day or two before, Jesus was their hero. And now they're declaring him the great villain who needs to die. What happened? Well, I mean, it's pretty amazing how powerful a force is public opinion. Psychologists, sociologists have done all this research. They'll do these tests and they'll show you a picture of three lines. Two of them are the same, and one of them is very obviously shorter than the other, and they want you to pick out the shortest line. Well, if it's just an individual, they get it every time. But for a lot of them, they're told that people have chosen one of the other two. And it's amazing how they will turn from what they see clearly and agree with the majority. Even though it's clearly wrong. Doesn't matter. (laughs) They want to be with everybody else. They want to be relevant. Being out of touch Invites ridicule, rejection. You know, today, I mean, think about it. Just a couple of decades ago, there were certain, particularly in the area of sexual morality, there were so much that was taboo that we wouldn't even think about was appropriate. And now, 
even believers have no objections. It's okay. We love relevance. We're addicted to relevance. Social media makes sure that we conform so that we're relevant. Because if you're not, there you go. You're going to be cast out. And this may be the bad news of the gospel. But if you're going to come to Christ, you need to know something. Jesus is not relevant. He is not culturally or socially relevant. Yes, he speaks into our life clearly. It doesn't matter what culture, what time. But what he says, you won't find in popular opinion. In fact, Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Jesus promises us this. He said, blessed are you. Note that first word. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Allegiance to Jesus means we enter into opposition with everything that's relevant, everything that's popular, everything that flows with popular opinion and culture and society because he comes to bring a different kingdom. And we may lose here, but there's a promise. Whatever you lose here is nothing compared to what you're going to gain. Because we may lose what is fake and false here, what is unable to keep us secure. And he will make us sons and daughters of heaven and give us everything. So which are you going to choose? Finally, the last character is Barabbas. First time, only time he's ever mentioned Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He was a murderer. But Barabbas is interesting. He's the only guy who very tangibly gained his life because Jesus took his place. And I've always wondered, whatever happened to Barabbas? After that, when he realized what happened, we can only speculate. We don't know. But the question is really not how Barabbas responded. 
but how we respond. Because we are the convicted insurrectionists. We are the rebels. We are the murderers. We are the guilty. And this king who voluntarily, he convicted himself in this court. He gave himself up. This king who calls you to himself, he doesn't just command your allegiance. He wins it. Because the death you should have died, because of your crimes, he died. The life that you could not live, he lived. He became just like you. So that you could become like him. He took all of your guilt and then gives you glory. This is what, who this king is. So how are you going to respond to the one true king? Where are you today? I don't know. Are you dabbling are you angry and because of your self-righteousness? Are you fighting, having to come clean, fighting to avoid weakness? Come. Jesus invites you to come. Because in your weakness, he will replace it with divine power. He will cover your disease and heal it and make you beautiful. Jesus gives us life instead of death. Isn't that the better choice? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to see and understand. Would you open our eyes, give us clarity, open our hearts that we would embrace the great, true King. Come, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. For more information, visit us online at southwood.org.